sing a rancher. Winston tastes good like a cigarette chew. Winston gives you real flavorful, rich tobacco flavor. Winston's easy drawing too. The filter lets the flavor through. Winston tastes good like a cigarette chew. many traditions are you inventing? There certainly has been an onslaught of news recently about how long some, well, traditional things have been around, and whether or not they are actually traditional, or whether they were simply invented in a different but shared recent past, and we've become used to them as traditional. The idea of invented tradition is certainly nothing new to us as humans, and not new to us at all in marketing. In a book written back in 1983, The Invention of Tradition, many examples of invented tradition are brought out. Things like the many rituals carried out by the British royal family, or that the President's State of the Union address is really only about 100 years old. Until President Wilson did it leading up to World War I in 1913, it was simply a note that they sent down to Congress. And it's only been called the State of the Union since 1934. In marketing, of course, we've made a living out of inventing traditions. If you take a coffee break today, well, that's a tradition made up by the Pan American Coffee Bureau in the 1940s in order to make coffee popular again. If when I say Santa Claus, you think of the traditional roly-poly fat guy in a red suit with rosy cheeks guiding a sleigh pulled by reindeer, you can thank Coca-Cola for that, who since 1931 has helped us define what Christmas will look like. If you're thinking of getting married and you want to follow the tradition of spending three months' pay on that ring for your significant other, well, you can thank De Beers for that little brilliant campaign. And just for all you content creators out there, you writers, there's the word like. Yep, we're not the first generation to change the definition of the word like. You're probably used to saying like to join conjunctions, as in, it looks like rain. She runs like the wind. Or this burrito is like a heart attack in a tortilla. In 1954, in an ad for cigarettes by Winston, they wrote the copy, Tastes great, like a cigarette should, instead of as a cigarette should. They received hateful letters, editorials, and other protests about the misuse of the word like. But Merriam-Webster actually changed the definition in the dictionary of the word like to actually make it a conjunction and they actually cited Winston's ad in their reasoning. Now, of course, all traditions are invented, meaning every tradition at some point wasn't. Someone first put money under their kid's pillow in exchange for a tooth. Someone sent the first Father's Day card or the first Valentine's Day card or went to work in a casual outfit on a Friday. Some Japanese person was the first to buy Kentucky Fried Chicken for Christmas dinner. All of those also came by the way of marketers, by the way, and that last one is a thing. Really, it is. Go look it up. So what's the point here? Well, the point is as marketers, as communicators, as content creators, this is our job. This is what makes us passionate about what we do. Creating culture and inventing tradition is what we aim to do. When we invent a tradition, we've hit a new high. We have done what we sought to do, which is to have impact on our culture. 
20 or 30 years from now, when we look back and people are up in arms and angry about leaving out the traditional emoji or abandoning the traditional hashtag or not shopping on the day after Thanksgiving or going to a wedding where there isn't something old, borrowed, or blue or removing the tradition of testing kids on knowledge retention in order to pass school or of physical universities altogether? That's the thing. You see, traditions and the monuments to them, they can be important. They are pieces of our reflected culture, the culture we make. They remind us that we are a collective piece of a shared history. They define our past and shape who we are today and who we might become. And that's the key, who we might become. We change. We are always inventing traditions. The ones that come down, come down because of us. The ones that stay, stay because we let them. For those of us who want to shape them, our responsibility is to each of those things. And that's the theme of our show today, traditions. The ones we invent and the ones we reinvent. And now, as is custom and traditional for me, it's time for me to slip into this week's show. Like, are you ready to make some history? Well, then, let's roll. For your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Hello, content marketers. This is Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 197 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded Monday, August 21st, 2017. And with me, as always, is my co-host, my colleague, my friend, and the longest-running tradition in content marketing, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you, my friend? You know, uh, I'm okay, but... Uh Uh-oh. But a lot of people, well, a lot of people don't realize that sometimes the show has to go on even when there's no power. That's right. So as that I is do, right. as I do this, uh, I have enough power on my laptop uh, that's going to get us through this episode. And Mr. Uh, Scott, I need power. I need. I gotta power. have power. I don't uh, <laughs> have any power, Captain. <laughs> Um, I love, you know what, by the way, one of the greatest clips in movie history is when Jim Carrey gets into the pool, uh, for Mace Adventure of a Pet Detective and does that <laughs> Star Trek bit. Best ever. Oh, yes. Like, there's a couple scenes from The Godfather and then yes. it's Ace Ventura. That's how close yes. it is. That's uh, right. No, yeah. So it, it was weird because we were all preparing for, as we were recording this, uh, the solar eclipse is happening. It's happening and as we As speak. we speak. In Cleveland, Ohio, I guess the maximum was at uh, 2.30, and we were all out there, but the power went out 45 minutes beforehand. We're trying to figure this out. But, alas, we were using cell phones, and it's it's hot as all could be in, the, my, in my office, but that's okay. That's because, all right. Because we're here, you're here, it's our time. Because, I, frankly, I'll do anything for you, Robert. And you That's, know this. I it's know you all, will. I know you It's will. not for any of the fans. It's just for you. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm here and you're here, isn't it our time, Mr. Hand? 
Oh my! This is the movie episode, friends. That's right. We're just going to quote movies for an entire uh, hour. God. But no, but it was good. Did you did you look at the eclipse? I, mean, I did, did look at the eclipse. I we went out. We got these um, special. We got two different kinds of glasses. We got the the little. Um, like they're cards that just have a filter on them and you just sort of hold them up in front of your face and those worked fantastic. And then we actually spent the money and we got these like binoculars that that um, that are specially built for looking at the sun. And that was okay. It just, it took a while and it was really small and it was, it kind of hurt your eyes and I wear glasses so that made it really difficult. So um, yeah, so the little piece of paper, it was, it was wonderful. I, we hung out for uh, half an hour watching the thing and, you know, seeing all the cool shadows that my favorite part is the shadows that the trees leave because they basically trees turn into giant pinhole cameras and you can see the really odd looking shadows on the street and stuff. That was really cool. It, I thought it was going to get darker than it did. I mean, it did get, I think it did for, it did get, for those that had total, for those that had yes. total eclipse, right? total eclipse of the heart yeah. that they they yeah they it did get pretty dark do you think that bonnie rate was not bonnie rate well not but what bonnie tyler bonnie tyler yeah. oh i'm thinking thank you for the correction that would have been right. horrible were that I, know, I only know that because my wife and i have been singing it all morning <laughs> total eclipse of the heart <laughs> that's um, right anyways we should probably get started because people are, that's right are already checking out of this episode there we go. uh before before we do before we get on That's to right. your to your quick hits of the news two quick announcements first of all use p uh code pnr 100 to get 100 dollars off content marketing world just two weeks from today hard to believe oh and we will God. be rocking and rolling in cleveland ohio i'm super excited about it it's going to be fantastic we have some we had some fun with the opening this year so we're gonna we're gonna have some fun with that one. So hope you can make it. Uh, bring a bring a friend, bring a team. We'd love to see you there. And then also September first, Content Marketing University opens up. So you can go to contentmarketinguniversity.com, Use PNR one hundred again, same code. So because we make it easy for you, it's always the same code. Save a hundred dollars on a uh, to get your subscription to Content Marketing Institute training university again go to contentmarketinguniversity.com and get that and as always you did a great job with that program so if anyone really needs to get training for their team or individually it's just it's simply the best program out there and uh, we'd love to see you um, subscribe to that as well so that's all wow. i have that's fantastic that's fantastic yeah i'm i'm super proud of it this year and I'm in. I'm working on next year's. So it's um yeah it's it's uh I'm I'm excited about it. I, I'm excited about the program every single year. So I think there should be a PNR 100 code for like Starbucks coffee. So oh, you go in, you use PNR 100 on a Starbucks coffee, and we owe them like ninety nine dollars and eighty cents. It's just always the same code. You know, I'm gonna. I'll talk about this a little bit later in my rave. But did I got a little bit of data on real estate? Did you know that your house is valued at, on average, is valued consistently higher if you're closer to a Starbucks than a Dunkin' Donuts? Did you? I know did that? not know that. I did not know that's that. That's why are, you I listen. Will, that's why you listen to PNR. That's, that's why you listen to this of, show. That's the kind of valuable information you get. On that's this show. the kind of insight you're going to get. I will <laughs> say I'm very happy then because I have no Dunkin' Donuts near me and I have nothing but Starbucks everywhere around me. So. There you go. So you are obviously valued higher. I mean, so I, so case in point, right there. There you go. There you go. We'll work on the code later. 
Okay. So. All right. Well, let's okay. move on to our first segment of the show, which is our quick hit section, which is really the top of the news that you need to know that we think you need to know and things that we'd like to cover, which are generally speaking, something around marketing, but could be really anything that we think is important for you to know about this week. And so we'll start off with our lead story here, which is kind of a continuation of a discussion we were having last week around the investment of some of these companies into content. And the headline here comes from, I mean, this was uh, covered in a lot of places, but the, what we'll link to in the show notes is from techdig.com. Um, and the headline is Apple will spend a billion dollars, that's a billion with a B, on original TV shows for its new streaming platform. The big tech giants, the article opens up by saying, are jumping on the original programming bandwagon to beef up their respective streaming platforms. The latest is no other than Apple, the company that is not buying Disney. Oh, come on. Oh, oh you there don't, we go. Don't the take away my Mac. thunder. And the iPhone <laughs> line of products. A new report has claimed that Apple is making plans to invest up to $1 billion in original programming. If all goes well, this cash will be spent on 10 shows. That's a lot of money on 10 shows. Yeah. Though it's not clear what type of shows the Cupertino giant is looking to bring to the table. And so other than it buying Disney and not buying Disney, what, what do you think about this? First of all, so we're you got this story from Tech Dig. Okay, I have Tech Dig's tagline they should this is the tag they should say uh tech dig can you dig it i knew <laughs> that you could <laughs> right and folks there's your yeah there's your movie there's your warriors there's <laughs> your warriors reference you gotta you have a warriors reference oh i gotta love me some john travolta um so you stole my disney uh zinger that i was gonna throw in here uh, I want. I really am interested to see why they're going to do this. First of all, you made the great point. One billion is a ton of money to spend for ten shows. So the article says they're going to spend ten shows, one billion dollars, and and it's you know Game of Thrones that they say in this article they spend right. what uh, is it five six million an episode on Game of Thrones six no, million no, per more, episode way more than that no no no, no, no it no. says right here it says right here in the article from Tech Dig. That's rather interesting because HBO spends around six million per episode for games of Game of Thrones. Well, not not over the last two ep- not over the last two seasons. The last two seasons were easily it's gone higher. Ten, yeah, it's gone way okay. higher. Well, because they all it became so popular, and they have to spend more on on the talent. But yeah, so um, these are games. So they're talking about ten Game of Thrones level types yes, of that, of, that of program, kind of, which would they, be ridiculously stupid. If and they, they br- yeah, they, so they brought yeah, they brought in. It's weird that they brought in t- two guys from Sony Pictures to run this thing and to go pick you know straight out of the Hollywood out, out of Hollywood programming textbook, and it seems strange to me. So my question back to you is, what's the what's the purpose? Because if their purpose is to build something like Netflix, I don't think this is the way to do it. I think there's much better ways to do it, which you've already mentioned. But uh, this doesn't make any sense to me. So I think that they're, that we don't have all the information yet or somebody's making a big mistake. We definitely don't. We, we definitely don't because they would not they would not be spending a billion dollars on original programming if they were simply going to if they were going to try and compete with Netflix. This would be a different story altogether. Yeah. This would be a much bigger investment if they were going to do this. This is something to do, I would guess, with a revamp of Apple TV, um, which has been 
coming for a, you know, for it seems like forever. Yeah. Um, and so I think this is part of something else, right? This is part of something that they're that that they're that they're doing that will be some revamp. I mean, how long have we been rumored? Has it been rumored to be the the Apple TV, which is going to be an actual television set, right? I mean, they've been talking about the Apple TV for a long time, more than just a little box. Um, that sits next to your computer and pulls in streaming programming, but rather an actual device, an actual platform. And so I could see the billion-dollar investment being, quite frankly, a lost leader to get you to buy the device. In other words, some new device is coming out, um, and they're using this as sort of a marketing package, which I is why I think that. it's so interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, uh, to you know, as a as a as a part of what you would get with this new. Apple TV, which would be exclusive access to all this new programming, as well as Netflix and HBO to go and everything else and Red Bull TV and everything that goes on the Apple TV. Well, that would be that's that was my guess. I mean, I have no data to support that. But well, that's the first that would be my guess. That's the first thing I wrote down when I when I read this. I'm like, what are we trying to do here? We trying to be Netflix, We're trying to be a competitor to them, or are we trying to sell more iPhones or more equipment? And I think you hit hit the nail on the head. It's probably something else. Because if they're trying to do uh, be the content leader, broad content leader in this case, if they're if they're going to do what this article says, um, they're going about it the wrong way. So that's right, that's right. But what do we know? All right. So, yeah. What do we know? Do we we know? just we know. you know. Hey, what do we know? Just, nah. We so one of us thinks that hey, Disney's hey, going to get bought. Hey, Robert. Hey. Robert. Yeah. Yeah. Can you dig it? I knew, I knew you could. that you could. Now, okay, you, you know where that comes from, right? You know that you know the movie that that comes from. Yeah, it's, a, it's Saturday Night uh, Fever, isn't it? I thought it was. Uh, or is I it from that's... Welcome Back, Cotter? No, it's um, uh, it's Saturday Night no, Fever. It's not. Oh, you know what I'm thinking of? You know what I'm thinking of is is the Warriors. Can you dig it? Oh, that's the yes. That's it doesn't that's and, and different. The, yeah, yeah, that is this, different. This is from it's from Saturday Night Live right? or Saturday Night Fever, correct? You are correct. Yeah, see, you, you are go. correct. I, I know my, it's but Saturday I think Night you know. Live, it's, but yeah, I think it's, he it's, crossed too because I think he used it in Welcome Back, Cotter as well a couple times. I knew that you could with okay. with Horshack or something. Yes. So, <laughs> all right. Anyway, <laughs> this, oh, moving on. This is a dandy next, episode. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Next to our next our next quick hit is coming from the New York Times, and a big hat tip here to Ashley Stryker, who I, I absolutely adore that name, um, and uh, uh, has sent this over, and it's a really fascinating article. The headline here is the rise of the fidget spinner and the fall of the well managed fad. Um, this one really does fit into our quick hits category because this is outside the bounds of content marketing. But I had a take on this. So the article opens up by saying, earlier this year when Christine Osborne first realized that fidget spinners, those small devices that have seemingly overnight colonized playgrounds and classrooms, were going to become a huge hit, she felt a deep anxiety. This was surprising because Osborne owns multiple toy stores in South Carolina. 20 years ago, she would have greeted a new fad like fidget spinners with glee. But the economy has changed quite a bit in the last two decades, and so when Osborne first began noticing the spinner craze, all she could think was, this seems like trouble. The article goes on to talk about really an interesting trend with these sort of fads like fidget spinners and beanie babies and pet rocks and those kinds of things. And that's the, 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 the interesting thing is that 
she talks about, or the, the, the article talks about here, how the world has changed so much that really the it's this disintermediation of the retail channel and the and the and the middlemen in between who have were able to sort of make markets when it came to making these fads really stick right for whatever period of time and that that time has been shortened certainly because it seems like you know fidget spinners are already kind of out yeah. um and it's also this lack of you know the digital the digitization, if you will, of the fad itself is driving a lot of the value out of the value chain that was created when she was involved in doing things like Beanie Babies back in the 90s or whenever it was. So, um, before, well, before I give my take, did you, did you have, did you, did you, did you get the same thing out of this or did you have a take on this? I thought it was interesting. Well, when you brought this up, I was like, I don't get it. Like, what's the, <laughs> give me the connection between, but now that I read, if you read the whole article, you can really see that the same thing has happened in publishing. In content that's right and online same thing or because what what she's saying is is that beanie babies took off and lasted because ty the manufacturer had control over distribution that's right and they limited distribution and because they limited they were able to modify it over time and keep it hot and people then wanted to get it and then you it created uh, you know really hard to get beanie babies and all that kind of stuff well now with fidget spinners which came and went in a matter of 30 days they were yeah. the hottest thing. Everyone sold them, and now nobody can sell anything. And they're, I mean, it's amazing how fast that happened, and those things keep getting faster and faster. And, and she's saying because nobody's thinking about a strategy anymore. It's almost like the, the tail wagging the dog, if you will. So it's yeah. just it's it's interesting that you can make the same case for what's happening in online content. And then I, then I was thinking, I guess I wanted to get your take is okay. So what? Because we know this, that means that you know you you don't have to worry about the media companies anymore. You don't have to go through the media. You don't have to advertise anymore. You can actually be the publisher. You can be the content. You don't have all the editors out there curating what I'm going to like as a consumer. So it's just changed the game. Of course, that's why we have the show. I mean, this is well, it's the it's, same kind of thing. I, I think it's exactly that. I mean, it was truly one of the inspirations for the theme of the uh, of certainly of this week's show, which is this sort of how do marketers, you know, our job is to invent culture, right? And in many ways, these kinds of things are in are in, are inventing the culture. Um, you know, think of Pokemon Go last year, right? You know, that just spread like wildfire, and that was a company spreading um, the idea. They didn't, they, you know, the, the the media was quite frankly the lag on the idea rather than sort of the thing that drove the virality of it. It was something that was completely driven out of a uh, of, out of a content driven experience. And when I when I think about those kinds of things, it, it reminds me very much that the time what we've done is compressed time here in terms of product development and the technology has not only democratized content, it's democratized product production is too. We often forget about that, how quickly we can get product out into the market these days and manufacturing has been disintermediated and 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 all of these, you know, it's become so easy to 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 produce product. And in some ways it's actually faster now to iterate on manufacture of a new product than it is to actually tell a story about that product. Well the, and the- Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'll let you. Finish. I was going to say, and so what it reminds me very much of is this: it, we're in a really new world here, where the that there are these opportunities to create longer lasting marketplaces that we create as marketers is challenged in this time compression, 
where we can actually rush something out and then rush it out, it basically based on a, a wave or a fad or something like that, it reminds me very much of what's going on in the music business. And in the music business, everybody has lamented the lack of development of artists, right? Because it used to be in the 60s and 70s that record companies, they had a whole department called artist development where they would take a young artist and the first couple of albums were really just meant to get them good at what they do. And and the concerts and the tours that they would do were really training grounds and they would develop these artists to become professional musicians and, and entertainers. And now there doesn't even exist anymore. If you can't go viral, if you can't be a hit, Within the next, you know, within a few minutes, literally, you they can't afford to develop you any longer. Yeah. And it's a yeah. really fascinating thing. And it's the same thing that's happening now in product development. I think, think it's a fascinating trend. Well, I, I think that if you read this article again, um, she talks about how she had to work really hard as a distributor to create a relationship with the manufacturer to sell Beanie Babies. And then she talked about fidget spinners where everyone, including my son, went to the same website in China to buy fidget spinners Yep, and get them out as fast as possible. And I, I think that if you go back to the great Don Schultz, the father of integrated marketing, he says, everything you do can be copied. Your entire product can be copied today from anyone, anywhere. And the only thing that you can differentiate with is how you communicate. Yeah, and you and I believe that we spread it. We talk about it in our book. I mean that I think so. That's the key, and that's also that's the opportunity, and that's why you can't get hung up on just what you sell anymore, because your relationship with your customers are going to change constantly. We're going to talk about it again with another article coming up. Same type of thing. If we focus on the audience and we focus on their needs, and we create a trusted and loyal relationship with them, we can. We don't just have to say, "Oh, this is what we sell." Because in the long run, it's not going to matter because you're, what you're, what you're going to sell is going to change over time. So. That's it's so right. It's it's so right. I think it's a great example. So a, a big, huge hat tip to Ashley for sending this over because it's now become a, a, an article that I'm going to try and use in some in some way for a talk or something like that. So uh, our last quick hit, we have to cover it because, you know, you have to cover it. It's the eclipse. And we just went out and watched the eclipse. And so this last quick hit comes from Ad Age and it says brands will not be eclipsed and opens up uh, with the the rarity of the total solar eclipse sweeping across the central United States means total marketing saturation on social media. After all, Monday will be the first total eclipse visible coast to coast in 100 years. Here's a look at what advertisers are doing for the eclipse when the moon covers the sunlight for a few minutes on Monday, and then it goes on to show all these Oreo dunk in the dark types of posts by brands that are taking advantage of the eclipse and I'm still waiting for the top 10 things that content marketers need to know about the eclipse or can learn from the eclipse. But other than that, I'm sure did, it's did been you, done. We just didn't see <laughs> did it. Did you have a take on this? No, you know, I think it's, it's cute, right? And, and a lot of, yeah. a lot of really smart marketers spent some significant time on this to try to newsjack this whole thing. But I just, I don't have, I just don't have any passion for newsjacking. It's a, it's, it's, it's a whole thing. If you get lucky, you could get lucky, but I, I would rather spend my time with my team on doing something substantial long term that's really going to make an impact with my customers instead of trying, oh, we're going to do, uh, let's do this, moon, we'll do moonskins instead of munchkins at Dunkin'. I'm like, come on. I, yeah. I don't, I don't have time for this. So yeah. it's yeah. fine. It, I'm right. not putting it's it cute. down. It's yeah, cute. no, I, it's I agree. Fine. With you. I totally get it. But if I buy the the uh, the moon cakes from Denny's, it's pan- they're pancakes. 
Right. They're just pancakes. <laughs> they're not moon cakes. If they came from the moon, Au or you, or you mon frere. If you they're, cook them on the moon, cakes at Denny's. Come on now. <laughs> now the moon's over my hammy. That's different. There which it is, is the greatest. Which is one of the greatest sandwiches ever. But moon it cakes is a good one. Don't. It's just pancakes. It's just pancakes. It is a good one. It is a good one. Okay. All right. Let's move on. That's make that a really quick hit. So let's move on to our next segment, which is, of course, our in-depth news, where Joe and I cover a couple of topics in more in-depth. Um, the first one here is a really interesting one and some good fodder for conversation. This is takeaways from the Yale publishing course, publishers embracing the flight or the, excuse me, the, the, yeah, the flight to quality. This comes from pubexec.com um, and is basically an article by the writer talking about all of the things that he learned while he was doing the Yale publishing course for magazine professionals um, just uh, last week. <clears throat> The course, as he says in the introduction to his article, hosted for the first time at the Yale School of Management, arms attendees with insights and strategies that will help them manage, change, and lead effective teams. Several media executives returned to speak at this year's course, including publishing legend and founding editor of People Magazine, Dick Stoley, Hearst Magazine's VP of Marketing, Michael Clinton, and Glamour Editor-in-Chief, Cindy Leave. Um, and then goes on to talk about some major takeaways that this guy took away. And I thought they were just great takeaways for those of us in content marketing that could really learn from, you know, looking at how publishers are looking at this move to quality over quantity as we look at moving at quality over over quantity. What do you think? Um, you're right. I mean, there's you covered it on the last podcast about truth and how, you know, covering facts uh, are really critical. I even say, I mean, there's basically truth is under assault right now. We've talked about this many times on the show. Yeah. Uh, is there an opportunity there? We think so. My surprise, though, which I wanted to get your take on, I know you have a take on this, but my surprise was is that if this is about publishing from Yale and the future of publishing, I would have thought that they would cover the change in the business model, I, which obviously they didn't because I think the the author of this would have talked about it, where you can't just sell advertising and subscription anymore to survive. That That's got really important. Like So all these things to me, and I don't want to rant on this because I agree with you. It's a good article. But pub, you know, number one, publishers cannot compromise on the truth. Number two, advertisers are beginning to value quality engagement over quantity. Number three, brands must constantly evolve to better serve their readers. Yes, that's all great. But don't forget about the business model. It's completely changed. You got to focus on that first. So anyways, that's my take. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I think it's the one thing that was missing. Uh, you know, and and I think, uh, quite honestly, it's the one thing that's missing from all of these articles. And I don't know whether it's just that it's too big a topic. You know, look, in many cases, and this is my experience as well, in many cases, the, the you know, and, and we could be, we, you know, this could literally be just a, a fundamental design of, I mean, although it's called publishing executives, so you'd think that they were that the audience for this is ripe for it. But in many cases, when we talk about this to an audience that goes, "Yeah, that's really great," but I don't—that's not me, right? I'm I'm a manager in you know in the in the publishing division, or I'm a marketing manager, or I'm a social media manager, or I'm a content creator. I, I can go I can go to my boss and say I want to change the business model of what we do. But they're not going to listen to me, which, you know, and that's a whole other thing we can get off on. But but the but the the point of it being, what are the things that we can give to this audience that are meaningful for their day to day 
jobs, I think this article covered. I th- and I think what happens in all of these articles is that whole idea of changing the business model of publishing is such a big idea that it's really hard to find other than the CEOs and the people and the owners of these media companies. Th- that's the only audience we can really talk to about this in any sort of tactical, tangible way other than Correct. just to identify it as a trend. And, and is that right? I would I would agree with that. I mean, I have um, I think it's the last week in September. I speak at Niche CEO Summit, and I'm, I'm basically speaking on the killing marketing model, but from right. the publisher standpoint, and saying, right. "Oh, this is great what you're doing, but basically you're only leveraging two or three revenue opportunities of this audience that you're built a relationship with, and I think you need to expand that, or you're going to be in significant trouble." If you yeah. don't at least start looking at this and making the change step by step, so well, it's, but I agree. You know, with, I, I don't. I think if you talk to a chief editor, uh, and we have many, you're right. They don't even think about it because yeah, they're not I thinking mean, about the revenue side. They're creating it, content and they're trying to focus on better content and more engagement and all that other stuff. But you, but the problem is you have to get those editors involved in the revenue discussion. I think that's right. That's well, I think you're exactly right. And so th- this is why, you know, and you and I had this conversation when we wrote the book. We have a chapter. It's one of the last chapters of the book. And there's a chapter in the book that s- says almost literally, hey, we get it. This is going to be overwhelming for most of you, right? This is, you know, talking about completely upending your business model and changing the entire function of marketing into a profit center is just, that's too big a hill to climb right now. Yeah. So what is it you can do today? What can you manageably do today to actually take the first steps? And we talk about many of the things that would sound incredibly familiar for any content marketer who's listened to this show or come to our events or come to our classes or been consulted by us over and over and over, which is looking at the integrated value of your content and the audience you're building, looking at creating multiple lines of value with content marketing, not just pulling more leads in, but actually creating business value and starting small and iterating owned media experiences that actually do more than just feed in as an alternative to advertising more leads into the funnel. It does more. It's a bigger, more strategic thing. Anytime we can move content, the approach of content marketing more integrated into the business, more value to be strategic to the business is a step in that direction. Well, the you you just made this case, and if people don't realize it, any publishing friends that don't realize this, the reason why publishers struggle with this more than marketers is because the revenue side and the editorial side are not talking to each other. And I know there's church and state. I get it. I grew up in publishing. You know, you want people focus on revenue. You want the uh, editorial and the content to be independent. I get that whole thing. And you can set up processes to do that and still have your editors and your content uh, creation team involved in how their content is driving revenue for the organization. I think if that is missing in your organization, there's a huge problem. People that are creating the content need to know what levers they're moving. If they create a blog post, if they send out a tweet, if they subscribe somebody to to the e-newsletter, they need to know how that impacts the business. And if they don't in your organization, you're going to be lost. They're going to be lost. They're not going to know what they're doing. They don't know that you have to tell them the meaning behind it and how it drives the business. Yeah, that's right. And there's no dashboard for that. You know, I, I won't mention her name because she would be embarrassed, but we've worked with a huge business to consumer brand that had a big content marketing 
platform. And you definitely know the name. You definitely know the brand. And it was funny. Every time that Joe and I would see her at Content Marketing World, she and she's one of those brands that every time her 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 company was mentioned, she was a you know basically a, one of the examples of content marketing done right. She was a case study. Everybody yep. mentioned her and blah blah blah. And every time we'd see her, she'd be like, "I wish somebody would tell my boss because my boss is about to fire me." Every time I'm trying to show measurability, I have to run around. There's no Google measurement thing for this. There's no Salesforce thing for this. There's no you know, Adobe Analytics measurement dashboard for this. I have to run around and show where my audience and my content is creating value in the business, in sales and in media and PR. And I go talk to them and we run experiments and I actually dig into their cubes and I darken their door. And I my measurement dashboard is a PowerPoint that I put together every single quarter for my boss to show the value of what we're doing. That's the effort that we have to make. It can't be done just by, hey, we get, we're driving more traffic. Right. And that's that's where we often stop. So, yep. Yep. Great. All right. Yeah. We killed that uh, story. Yeah, we exactly. We 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 got into it. Um, (laughs) So last but not least on our on our deep dives here is uh, from Forbes dot com. Um, that no, I'm not going to go off on Forbes. Uh, that's all right. So it's Facebook's advertising fallacy that it works is the headline. Fewer than one third of U.S. consumers are influenced by social media when making a purchase decision. That was an eye-opening statistic from a new consumer survey conducted among 1,512 U.S. online consumers by Splashlight, a visual content creation company. That pretty much aligned with findings from a 2016 study by Lithium Technologies, a digital engagement platform. In their survey conducted by Harris polls among 2,000 U.S. consumers, they found that all consumers, but most, especially some 74% of digitally native millennial and Gen Z consumers, object to being targeted commercially by brands in their social media feeds. The article goes on to talk about basically how the idea of advertising on Facebook may be a fallacy in that it actually works. What did you think about this? Because I don't want to go off on too much of a rant on this, but uh, I do have a take I, on it. I, I don't even know where to start with this. Um, <laughs> the, the, the title of this article is Facebook's Advertising Fallacy that It, that it Works. I was intrigued Clickbait. right away because you, know, you and I ran on Facebook all the time. And I really wanted to ask you, and I'll ask you this question. Do you think that some of the – this is separate from this article. Do you think that some of the newness – uh, is gone, and we're, we maybe not are not seeing as effective advertising because of that. But that's not what this article talks about. This article talk, takes takes findings from certain surveys and tries to make cases out of them that I don't think you can necessarily make. Yes, and so that's I, I don't. <laughs> my point is the point the point I'm going to make here has nothing to do with the article. My point right. is we just talked about this truth. It's really critical. If you are building a brand, uh, you, you need to make sure that even if you have contributors like Forbes does, and I have a lot of friends at Forbes, and I think that they're really hardworking, and Forbes is a, is a very, very good brand. I don't think it's as great as it used to be because of the fact that there's so many people contributing whatever they want, and it's so hard to fact check all these different contributors. And I think sometimes that brings down – in some some brands, it doesn't matter. Forbes, I think it does. And I think that if you get an article like this that has some good points to it, but I don't think you can make the case that the title wants you to make. Right. And it bothers well, me. It it's bothers a, me. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a classic case. You've heard me say this a million times in, 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 in workshops that the, the facts are not the truth. 
right? So this, I'm sure, I'll bet you every single statistic in here is actually factually correct. Yes. But, but synthesized together into the point of view that this article takes, it's not the truth, right? So I can make facts say something different. And that's and and it's not necessarily true. Not a lie necessarily. Yeah. It's just it's it's just not the truth. And so it's a very very different thing. Yeah. I well and I and I'll and I'll speak from experience because I've just spent the last two and a half months buried in data from um, I won't say who yet because someone commissioned me to do a study um, on this using their client data. Um, so I got to look at more than 900 different face brands that were using Facebook advertising, organic, et cetera, et cetera. And the two myths that I'll dispel right here, sort of spoiler alert from this for this white paper that I'm working on with them, is that organic is still there for some brands. Organic reach is still absolutely a thing for some brands, and quite frankly, quite a few brands. Um, and it crosses B2B and B2C. And the second thing is, is that Facebook advertising is still working very well for a lot of brands. Yeah. No, I I would say that this articles like this makes a case for traditional media that it can work because you have an editorial team that is really worth its salt. That's what I, I that's where I think that if you look at let, let's take a, a LinkedIn publishing platform for example. LinkedIn it's great. Anybody can publish. We just talked about this, right? There's no right. there's no uh there's no intermediary. Right, the media technically is you can reach the end user using all kinds of great platforms like <clears throat> like a LinkedIn and whatever. But there's no editor at LinkedIn that's going to say, "No, you can't do this because it doesn't meet our publishing guidelines," or "I don't think you can make the case that you're trying to make." I think you need to do X, Y, and Z. That's, that's right. where great editors come in handy. They, I mean, because they're sort of the gatekeepers between making sure that this that we hold true to our content marketing mission, our editorial mission. Yeah. So that's where if you are a brand. Uh, that sells products and services or whether you're a media company that's why your editor is so important that's why I always, well it's I've, what we're, it's a, I've always yeah, no, I just I've always said that the most important position is not more content creators in your content team it's the editor yep. it's the role of the editor it's it's absolutely the fact i mean this is you've heard me say this in in, in workshops as well this is the brand's advantage over today's media company is that the, the the and I I just wrote a post on this that seems to be doing quite well on the on the CMI blog this whole idea of trust the democratization of distrust is our advantage it is the advantage for brands that want to create the truth it is it is quite frankly you know Ashley Stryker who 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 posted this and also gave us a story last week that we sort of missed the ball on um, this was the point here is, is that we have both a responsibility and an opportunity to be where we, you know, to set the truth and a point of view uh, th- that, that really sets things right because we don't have to kowtow to the page view and to the, yep. you know, advertising side of things. We can, we can actually become the distinctive point of view in our industry, in our space and, and what it is we cover. So it's a, it's an opportunity. Amen, brother. There it is. I'm with you. All right. Hey, speaking of opportunities and speaking of big projects and speaking of big issues and having a point of view on one, our sponsor this week is just really great. <laughs> it's really 
It's really great. <laughs> See how I did that? It's See how I did yes. that? Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. Thank you to our friends <laughs> at Smartling for bringing us an exceptional piece of content. It's uh, an ebook for you. Seriously, it's a good piece of content. It really uh, is. It's called Translation, A Reliable Recipe for Business Growth. Again, sponsored by our friends at Smartling. Just a couple stats here. According to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, 95% of the world's consumers live outside the U.S., and any company pursuing them with English-only content is likely limiting its revenue potential. According to Common Sense Advisory, more than 70% of consumers are more, like, more likely to buy a product with information listed in their native language than a comparable product without. These realities haven't been lost on the world's leading brands who are really thinking thoughtfully about translation, especially when they're creating content at a global scale. This ebook called Translation, a reliable recipe for business growth, is a great start. If you don't know how to do this, I, I would compel you to download this. They'll talk about some of the factors, including understanding the revenue potential of doing this, gathering your content requirements, assembling the right team, planning the process for localization and translation, and using technology as a competitive advantage. You can download this ebook at cmi.media slash PNR197. That's cmi.media slash PNR197. And thank you, as always, to our sponsor for the last uh, four or five weeks, Smartling, who has been just fantastic supporter of this podcast for a very long time. So. Absolutely. A wonderful, wonderful sponsor and a, just a fantastic piece of content. And, and we've talked about it on every episode that they've been a sponsor of for this p particular piece, how important getting the global and translation and localization strategy right really is. Because it's and, hard. And it is it not is really easy hard. to it do. It is really hard. Yes. It is really difficult. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is now time for your favorite part of the show. It is our rants and rave section when Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave over something that makes us feel, oh, like tearing something down or letting it become sort of part of our in, in, inbred culture. Um, and let's see. I'm going first because I have this old marketing right. this week. Sweet. So I have, a, uh, I have a rave and maybe a bit of a piece of commentary here. My rave, um, um, you know, and anybody who listens to this show knows, um, that I'm a bit of a fanboy for Harvard Business School. Is it? Is it? Is that? Is that a little I bit. I think that's. I think that's a, a safe. Yeah. Yes. Bit, I think most bit. people would know this that have listened. <laughs> yeah. To this. Exactly. Yes. Um, and so this, um, what we'll link to in the show notes is an article um, from Min Online, um, and it's basically the headline is the big idea behind Harvard Business Review's uh, record growth. I am a subscriber, a fanboy. I am a subscriber to both the print magazine as well as the digital publication, and check it um, uh, reasonably frequently every week. Um, and and just the article itself is basically that there's some really wonderful takeaways. They've they've done very well for themselves over the last year or so. And the article really speaks to this idea that we were just talking about of, of quality over quantity. And they've re actually reduced the number of print magazines that they that they produce, but they haven't reduced the quality of the magazine at all. I will tell you the look, the feel of the paper, the everything about it is actually a, a thicker and, and more substantive magazine, even though that they've decreased the publishing frequency of it. Um, and the other thing is that they've actually increased the digital by uh, digital subscription by incorporating Incorporating more of the offline and online together, and they had this idea that they that they basically launched with this quote unquote called the big idea, 
which was really centralizing a big, deep, tentpole piece of content and really letting it run um, and really getting into the depth of it. And one of my favorite lines from this article uh, was basically um, that they, as the editor said, um, we've always aimed our content at the C-suite, but we also learned that a lot of the content we produce is about managing yourself and managing your career. And I think that has really helped. I've noticed this editorial change for them over the last um, few years, which is they really have a lot of articles in there about how to really manage yourself in your career and sort of navigate your way through a senior leadership career in a business. And they've grown 10%. They're up over 300,000 now circulation. And and it's just a wonderful case study, I think. And I just had to give it a big shout out there for all the things they're doing. Yeah. The second piece that I'll rant about, I guess, or common give commentary on for just briefly is um, for those of you who listen to the show regularly, you've heard me mention the GDPR, which of course is the big European um, uh, regulation and law that came out that basically, you know, this is way too simplistic to, but, uh, but just for the sake of time, I'll say it it is, it is a privacy um, set of rules that basically say, if you market to people, if you capture information from people in the EU um, and you manage email subscriptions or data around those subscribers, you need to have their permission to do so and you need to have the ability to remove it upon their request. And and it's way more complex than that, but suffice to say that's the, the, the gist of it. And so it's starting, to, I can feel the groundswell. I've, we've been talking about it for a long time here, but it's just now starting to, to get some groundswell. Gartner's now talking about it. Forrester's talking talking about it. Deloitte, the big five are talking about it. And there's an article that just came out um, on Media Post actually last week. And they sort of quote Gartner on it. And it gets exactly wrong what I think is mostly wrong with the GDPR and what the problem is. Because what's happening is, is that GDPR, especially here in the States, is being positioned as a security issue, a data security issue. And it's not. It's a marketing issue. And if we don't look at it as a marketing issue, we are going to abdicate responsibility of designing our systems in a way that will comply and quite frankly, lose the huge opportunity that we have. And this is both on if you're a technology provider, an agency, or on the brand side of how you actually gather emails and data from your audiences and consumers. And content marketing is a huge piece here. This is a design issue. This is a business design issue, not just a simple data check the box, make sure that we're secure kind of thing. And the article that we'll link to in the show notes basically goes on to say, this is going to be a big deal, and Gartner expects the GDPR to drive 65% of all data loss prevention, buying decisions throughout the year. So basically, CIOs and IT people are going to be really worried about this and, and all of that. And if you're not concerned or worried about this as a business that does business in the EU and captures consumer data, then you're missing the point. And so I just urge you to get educated on it and know about it because it's coming less than a year from now. And, it, and it's something that we all need to be paying attention to. And so I just I thought totally I'd totally agree with it. you. I totally agree with you that it, that people are spending this the wrong way. I'm glad you brought this up. Yeah. Because this is serious for marketing. And, uh, yeah, and it's an opportunity it. to look at this as a, as a way to redesign the way that we do things and use the, the coolest thing, the awesomest thing, the, and the awesomest, the technical term here the, 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 about this is that this is a challenge that content marketing solves. If you're looking for a business case, the GDPR is something that content marketing solves. Why? Because if people subscribe to your stuff, 
then that's a transactional, that's a giving value for the, in exchange for their data. It is the opposite of scraping their data off of a ad tech solution or something like that, where you're scraping data or you're pulling data in in nefarious ways. This is the quintessential example of why the GDPR is, is, is there, is because giving data in exchange for value is what it is, is okay. That's what it is. It's a huge business case and an opportunity for content marketing. And spinning it as a data problem, as a security problem, is just the wrong way to look at it. You said nefarious. That's such a wonderful word. Nefarious. 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 All right. How about you, my friend? I have a very quick rave. uh, And you know I have an interest in real estate investing. Investing of all kinds. But real estate investing is – I do. A little bit. Reading a little. I I get books out of the library and download them on Kindle and whatnot about uh, real estate. And I came across a book called The New Rules of Real Estate – uh, by two gentlemen, Spencer Raskoff and Stan Humphreys. Spencer Raskoff is CEO of Zillow, and Stan Humphreys is the chief economist at Zillow. And this book is published by Zillow Talk. <laughs> so it is a uh, – and so, okay. I mean, I come obviously from this industry. So I look at it and I said, oh, this, is a, this could be great or it could be horrible. Because it could be just somebody that says, hey, you got to use Zillow for all this stuff. and uh, Or it could be a really good thought leadership type of book. And I was so uh, impressed with this book, at, you know, the piece of data that I shared with you about <clears throat> if you live closer to a Starbucks oh, than right. a, a okay. Dunkin' Donuts, it comes from this book. And yeah. uh, it, I've read a lot of real estate books. And what I love about this is they use all their own proprietary data that they get from the hundreds of millions of listings that they have around the world, and they take that data to um, to put together basically 10 different points on how you should start to look at real estate differently. And they really talk about it's not location, location, location. It's future location, and you can predict what future location is going to be hot from a real estate standpoint, if you look at this data in a certain way. So I was, I was loving, absolutely loving it. So I don't have much more than that just to say that here's a real, and, and I've talked about this a lot on the podcast and on the Content Marketing Institute blog about the opportunities to produce a book. And that I think if you're really serious about your content marketing strategy, you should consider a book, a printed book. Uh, as as a channel to consider as part of that strategy, Zillow does this better than most because they've created a book that has that doesn't say anything about you need to get your house on Zillow and you need to do this on Zillow. All it does is just take the data they have uh, that they've been that they've been putting together for the last many many years, and they said here's how you can use this data. It's kind of like we talked about an editor before. Use this data mm-hmm. that you can really make um, your real estate career investing career more profitable and uh, hats off to the folks at Zillow for getting this done. We've had many speakers from Zillow actually speak at content marketing world and intelligent content conference and rightfully so, because I think they're doing it right. So rave, rave to our friends at Zillow for actually creating a book that's worth its salt. So yeah, they've done some really cool things. I think they were, weren't they nominated last year for an award? I think think we had a content marketer of the year up there. Absolutely. And I was going to mention when you talked about Harvard Business Review that Scott Berrettino, who's the senior editor at Harvard Business, is speaking at Content Marketing World this year, too, and talking about I know. Oh, trust me. Of course. I I have a feeling you're going to be in that session. I'm I'm well aware. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. All right. So now it is time for our This Old Marketing. And um, we have a quick one um, this week. So you know that 
I have a love for dogs. You you know yes, this. I do um, know this. Um, we have three dogs here, and we've had dogs. My wife and I have had dogs. I've had dogs all my life, but I've certainly had dogs ever since um, my wife and I have been married. And um, and we absolutely adore. Um, and, and in fact, you know, we 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 one of our, our our biggest sort of effort in the nonprofit space and sort of volunteers and stuff that we do are all for dog rescue organizations and those sorts of things. So anyway, I, I pay attention when it comes to dog stuff. And so <clears throat> I get this publication in uh, in the mail and it basically is this thing that's put out by this we have pet insurance um and we the pet insurance company that we get this through is a it was like a magazine and it was it was really well done it was basically here's a guide for all of the reasons that you you know that <clears throat> of how to take care of your new puppy and here's what you need to think about in terms of vaccines and um and here's all of the things that you need to get done and and how to you know and it was basically a a, a almost an owner's manual for how to take this rescue dog that you take in, how to deal, right? And it was just really well put together. And I'm like, and I, I, I just don't believe that the insurance company wrote this, right? It just doesn't feel, I mean, it felt good, right? It felt really wonderful. And so I start to look into it and I find that it's actually a con- piece of content created um, by the uh, 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 American Animal Hospital Association, the AAHA, and come to as I start doing a little more research in, they actually create a lot of content that they then make available to other organizations and they sell and make available through, you know, through um, licensing agreements that other like pet insurance companies and other veterinarian hospitals and those sorts of things can actually license and reuse and make their own, put their own, you know, sort of a custom publishing house, if you will, right? So here's the American Animal Hospital Association acting as custom publisher for thought leadership when it comes to how to take care of dogs and cats and pets. They have a magazine, and the, what I want to mention is the magazine. So, I mean, already it's already cool because they already have an operation that's that's around content and, and using that for generating other organizations' marketing efforts as a publisher. But what I thought was really cool was their magazine, um, and they have a magazine that they call Trends, and they've been publishing it since 2007, I believe, 2008 for sure, um, which I could find um, uh, records of. And it's basically a trends magazine that has all sorts of perspectives and, and strategies, et cetera, for the practice of veterinarians, right? So if you're a veterinarian and you want to read about a magazine, this is the magazine that you would actually um, read. They have a monthly publication. It's all the real world strategies, business management practices, like how to set up your legal thing, how to set up your cash register, how to do all these kinds of things, tips, techniques, all those sorts of things that really basically are how to operate your business better as a uh, veterinarian hospital. And then they also tell the stories of actual veterinarians, et cetera, et cetera. Those articles as well are then available for other um, other types of businesses to use and license and and to use in their own materials. They've got other publications as well, but this is the one that I'll I'll, I'll basically uh, mention here. What I found the most interesting, however, and maybe and I have no knowledge of this. I don't know anybody there or anything like this. I just found it interesting in my research. They actually increased their print publication and have killed their digital edition. Ooh, it's really? fascinating to me. Yeah, I don't know why. I can't tell you why. Uh, there may be some reason behind that, but they basically stopped publishing their digital edition a couple of years ago and have since continued to publish the print magazine. And I just thought it was fascinating. And I think a really wonderful example of this old marketing. 
I love that. That's yeah. that's just tremendous. It's uh, it goes back to my love of the magazine RVs and dogs. Yeah. A lot of people don't know is a real thing. <laughs> I know it is. <laughs> I, know I it use is. that like, example all the time for like creating a really niche topic. RVs like, and dogs. RVs and dogs. It's like don't just talk about pet supplies. Talk about yeah. pet supplies for people I've, that like to travel with their pets. Can't get yeah. more niche than that. Anyways. That's about it. No, I love that. Gets. Great, great. Uh, this whole marketing this week. And what's yeah. your uh, so? What's your week looking like this week? Oh, I'm d- I, d- I am I am neck deep in PowerPoint, yeah. my friend. Um, working on the workshop, working on my keynote, getting ready for a couple of exciting little announcements that I've got at Content Marketing World that'll be fun to play with. Um, making meetings, getting my you know what together for content. I have a I have a trip I have to do quickly to New York um, this week, but just an overnight. I'm keynoting at a conference. Um, then flying back and yeah, I'm just heads down. I'm heads down. How about you? I mean, it's two weeks till content marketing world. So we're, yeah. we're doing everything we can to get ready for it. Uh, you know, obviously last minute speaker changes and, and getting the program ready to go and all the seating and all that, all the logistical stuff is really coming down. And so, uh, but I'm looking forward to it. It's always like homecoming. Or, it's. Uh, I can't wait. It's going to be so great. I, I'm just already certain the the trickles are coming in. Like, hey, I'm going to see you there. It's like, oh my gosh, that's so great. It's, uh, it's just going to be so much fun. It's going to be. It's going to be. It's going to be a party. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully, absolutely. if you're not, if you're listening to this, you're not going to be there. Come on, send us a note. Why? I, I really would like to know. I want to see you there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's we're going to have a good time. So. Absolutely. All right, folks, that is it for episode number 197. And if you like this, won't you leave us a kind review on iTunes or consider subscribing via iTunes or Stitcher.com or your favorite podcatcher. And if you leave us a review or if you subscribe, hashtag us up, won't you, at This Old Marketing. We'd love to thank you personally for all that lovely kindness, nefarious kindness, as Joe might like to hear it. And so we really want those story ideas, too. Story ideas, story ideas. Thank you for all those who submitted them. We love them. We need them. The This Old Marketing examples are also great. Hashtag us up on Twitter at hashtag This Old Marketing because that makes it easy for me when I'm doing the show flow on Saturdays. Or, you know, if you've got a question and you want to send us an email, you can also do that at thisoldmarketingacontentinstitute.com. All the links we talked about today, of course, will be available in the show notes as we go to publish on Monday night. And, of course, in the show post itself at thisoldmarketing.com on Saturdays. Until next week, everybody, remember, it is your story to tell. Tell it well. See you next week on This Old Marketing. is part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.